My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listened to an interview that aired live December 4, 2015, on Radio Sputnik World Service. The number of U.S. police officers charged with uh, murder or manslaughter for uh, on-duty shootings has well, it's tripled this year, actually, if uh, one compares it with last year, 2014, and some connect this surge with uh, more video evidence. Now, in your opinion, does it mean that uh, in the past uh, there were more bad policemen and they got away with wrongdoing simply because of their actions weren't recorded? The short answer is we don't know, but, but let's look at it this way. The best estimate is that each year in the United States, on-duty police officers shoot and kill somebody more than a 1,000 times, probably a 1,000 to 1,100 times each year. And most of those shootings are found to be legally justified. In other words, the officer had a reasonable apprehension of an eminent threat of deadly force or serious bodily injury being imposed against the officer or somebody else. That's the legal standard. So over the past decade, from 2005 through the end of 2014, 47 officers across the country were charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting. So as you mentioned, that's an average of under five a year over the last decade. And this year, so far, 15 officers have been so charged. But here's the problem. It's, It's difficult to say that that's a trend or a spike or even some sort of a pattern because we're dealing with outliers. We're dealing with a very small sample. And, you know, in terms of the, you know, looking at it from a statistical standpoint, the statistical changes really are not significant. But interestingly, of the 15 officers who've been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting this year in the United States, 10 of those 15 officers were charged, at least in part, because of video evidence that demonstrated that the officer was not legally justified in shooting and killing somebody. And that's, that's a change. That's something we've seen growing over the last several years. But if we were to take those 10 cases away, we're left with uh, five, and that's pretty much the average of what we'd seen over the last decade. So it's difficult to say that uh, bad policemen have gone unpunished, have gotten away with murder, literally. But it does raise serious questions, and it does give me pause, because I would have to think that of those 1,000 to 1,100 times a year where officers shoot and kill somebody while on duty in the United States, that some of them, at least one, we don't know how many, probably would have a different result if we had video evidence. But videos have become an important factor, haven't they? Although some people are saying at the end of the day, I mean, there's other ways of getting evidence, for instance, eyewitnesses. Well, that's true, but, you know, eyewitness uh, uh, reports are, are notoriously difficult. They, they sometimes don't pan out as being, as, as being true. So we've got four main types of video cameras. We've got the dash cams. Those are the cameras that are mounted right on the front of the police cars. We've got body cams where police officers are wearing cameras right on their body. We've got surveillance video recordings, and then we've got smartphones. Now, almost everybody has a smartphone, and on those smartphones, they have the ability to record video. But one of the problems with smartphone video is that people don't start recording until they recognize uh, that there's a problem. But here's the bigger issue. The bigger issue is that in the past, the police have really owned the narrative in these reports when they're reporting, when they're making statements after shooting and killing somebody. In other words, when they explain the facts, uh, there's really 
very little evidence quite often or no evidence to directly rebut what the officer's saying. And in several of the cases this year, starting with the shooting in North Charleston, South Carolina, it was clear that the officer's uh, initial statements and reports were false. They lied in the reports. And even worse, it was clear from the video that the officer, his first thought was to cover up the crime he had just committed, to plant evidence to make it look like something else had happened than what in fact had happened. And how many of these officers actually end up in jail, Philip? I mean, you've got some statistics in front of you. And, I mean, how has it changed from year to year? And are more police officers going to be charged now? Well, over the last almost 11 years, uh, what we've seen with the officers who have been charged with murder and manslaughter when they've killed somebody with a firearm while on duty, only about 22% of those officers are ultimately convicted. And when they are convicted, quite oftentimes they're convicted of a lesser offense, such as negligent uh, manslaughter or negligent homicide, and they're rarely sentenced to anything other than a short prison term. So that 22% of the cases or so has been pretty static. It's been the same across the those 11 years. And I really don't expect that to change. And the reason for that is that what we've seen in my research is that when these cases get to court, when they get to trial, that juries are very reluctant to second-guess the split-second life-or-death decisions that police officers make in violent street encounters while they're on duty. And I really don't think that's going to change. We can't predict what a trial jury will do in the United States. They deliberate behind closed doors. And I don't think that'll change. So I think we're probably going to see over the the next several years, more cases where officers are charged with murder or manslaughter, but I really don't think the percentage of cases in terms of ultimately uh, having uh, criminal convictions, I, don't, I really don't expect that to change much. Philip, let's go back to the statistics that you yourself compiled. I think they went all across the United States. What surprised you most? Well, I study police crime, so I study all types of crimes by officers. In terms of the on-duty shootings, the videos have been shocking in several of the cases because they depict outright executions where they summarily executed somebody, and the cover-ups have surprised me. But in terms of the greater research that we do, in terms of studying different types of crime committed by police officers where they're arrested, I've been surprised by some of the results that we found. So, for example, prior research has suggested that if an officer is going to get in trouble, if they're going to be corrupt, if they're going to engage in misconduct or commit some sort of crimes, they're going to do that very early in their career, probably within the first three to five years while they're on the job. And then they'll probably wash out. They'll probably get fired and they just won't be an officer anymore. And our research has shown something completely different. What we've seen is that about 20% of these cases involve an officer who's very close to being able to retire. They're at the end of their career. And we really don't know why that is. That's something that has surprised me and that's something that we've been looking into for a number of years now. The other thing that surprises me is that when I started this research, I really assumed that if an officer was arrested for much of anything, that they would lose their job. And what we're seeing is that's not necessarily the case. And even officers who are convicted of minor offenses sometimes don't lose their job. Sometimes we're surprised to see that they get arrested time and again, that they get arrested two, three, four times while they still have their job. And that's been surprising. And what about the figures when it uh, concerns police, uh, police brutality, Philip? I mean, white officers, black people, black officers, white people... 
Policing in the United States is violent and it's ugly, and I think people recognize that generally in this country. Police brutality is still a problem, even if we move race and ethnicity from the discussion. But clearly, there's a problem with how African-American people are treated by the police in the United States. But this is nothing new. What's new is that people other than African-Americans are now paying attention to it. They're now noticing it, and they're discussing it. It's something that's getting into the public dialogue, and it's something that the media is paying close attention to. So clearly, uh, black people have been well aware of their disparate treatment and the brutality that they've uh, suffered at the hands of the police quite often. Uh, but other people haven't been paying attention, and now that's something that's completely different now. You know, people are paying attention, and I think that, you know, I think that's something that, that's important. I think it's important to try that. One of the limitations of my research is that due to the type of raw data that we collect and analyze, it's not possible to quite often know the race of the victim. We do track the race of the arrested officer, but it's difficult for us to track the race of the victim. And as a result, in my research, there's really a limitation because we aren't able to show any findings statistically relating to race of the victim. And there's no other research on a large scale that can do that as of now either. Well, this is extremely interesting, and obviously you're going to continue your work on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have a, a staff of uh, students who are research assistants, and we continue to uh, collect data. At the, at the rate of uh, over a 1,000 cases each year where an officer is arrested for something in the United States. And, Philip, lastly, I mean, how does it um, compare from one state in the United States to another? Typically, it's across the board we see these types of problems. We do see that some types of crimes seem to be more common in rural areas as opposed to in large cities. Where we see differences across the country, we see the differences in how the courts treat the cases, what the final criminal case dispositions are, and how the agencies that employ the officers handle it. What are their final employment outcomes? And I'll give you one example. We did a study a number of years ago that officers who were arrested for drunk driving, and we had 782 cases over a five-year period where officers were arrested for drunk driving. And what we found was, in some states, the officers were automatically going to lose their job as soon as they were arrested for drunk driving. Other states, they rarely lost their job. And then we saw in some states, they were rarely convicted of drunk driving, but in other states, they were almost always convicted of drunk driving. So we do see differences in how these cases are handled. I'm not sure that we really see differences in terms of the types of crimes that are committed from state to state across the country. But those police officers are allowed then to keep their jobs? I would have thought the answer is no, because certainly if you're convicted of a felony, a serious crime, in most, if not all, states in the United States, you would be prohibited from being a sworn law enforcement officer. But what's happening here is that oftentimes the crimes that they are convicted of, even if they're originally charged with a felony, are misdemeanors. In other words, very minor offenses. And in many places, there's not a prohibition against officers with a misdemeanor conviction keeping their jobs. And what surprised me is when we see officers who we see their names come up again. They're in our database already from being arrested one or more times over the years, over the last decade, and we're shocked to see not only that they're arrested again, but they're still working as a police officer. That must be really surprising. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't what I expected. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. This project was supported by award number 2011 IJCX24, awarded by the National Institute of Justice at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast 
are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.